Um, I don't know that the date, you would probably know more than I will. It was uh, right after Pastor Henry's um, daughter was born. And uh, I think I filled in just to give him a break as they were going through all that with her Down syndrome and, and things like that. I forget her name. I apologize. But I think that was the last time I, I was here. Matthew chapter 7 tonight. Matthew chapter 7. I'd like to take us on a journey. Adam was just telling me you guys covered the Sermon on the Mount last year, I think in your Sunday school hour, and uh, you took several weeks to cover it, and I'd like to do it in one night. So um, buckle your seatbelts, and uh, we're going to have a good time tonight uh, through that. But there really is a purpose and a reason for why I'd like to do it. Um, Matthew chapter 7, let's look at verses 24 through the end of the chapter. Then we'll ask God's help in us understanding and applying His Word accurately to us tonight, and then we'll dig into the text of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, the Word of God says, Therefore, whoever hears the saying of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto him a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And by now you probably have the song going in your head, right? A wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it." And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. And look at verse 29 with me. I love when the Gospels use this. Mark uses this a lot. Matthew uses it. Luke uses the same type of terminology, speaking as when Jesus speaks. For he taught as one having authority. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is speaking as the Word of God, right? Unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the chief priests and the scribes, when they're, when they're referring to, to different texts of Scripture, they rely on other chief priests and Pharisees. So it's no longer about the Word of God, it's about the traditions of men. Even within the tradition of, of Israel's Jewish religion, And he finishes this chapter, Matthew finishes this chapter, writing to the Jews the significance of this this verse here in 29, having authority not as the scribes. Let's open with a word of prayer tonight. God, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that your word has power and has authority in our lives. And I pray, God, that tonight our hearts will be open to that power and to that authority That when your word speaks to our hearts, our answer would be yes, Lord, yes, and to conform to the image of Christ. I pray that you would help us to look at your word accurately tonight so that we could apply it appropriately. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned that I'd like to take us through the whole whole text here, but it's been a couple years now that I've really been a, a, a great burden for my own self to have a knowledge of God's word a deeper knowledge of God's Word, not just a sense that I know the stories. I think in a Christian home, I just speak it more from my own experience, more than than anybody else, and you can relate, fantastic, but growing up in a Christian home, going to a Christian school, going off to a Christian college and seminary, and even being a pastor, it's easy to know the stories of God's Word. 
You know, you had the flannel graphs back when you were in the 80s and 90s and maybe early 2000s. That were the story would be depicted. Now you've got PowerPoints and all the other you know, technology that, that kind of shows the stories and the images. And you, and you could quote those stories by heart. You might have scripture memory type of, of programs where your kids are getting involved in memorizing scripture and, and, and maybe there's prizes and, and things like that. You know, at Tri-State we do Awana and, and, the, and the value of that. And I, grow in, I grew up in Awana and I remember the value, even a lot of the verses that I memorized in Awana, I could quote today. But there's a difference between knowing God's word, having it memorized, and knowing God's word, having it deeply sunk into my heart and applied in the things that I do. And when you look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, it fascinates me to think that that covers three chapters of the Word of God, and yet it's probably a sermon that Jesus preached within an hour. Isn't that fascinating to think about? You took a whole summer to dig out the truths of that message. That's how powerful this message really is. And when Jesus spoke the message, He spoke it in about an hour. So then what's the significance when we get to chapter 7, verses 24, 25, 26, and 27? I'm going to sum it up and give you the cheat sheet right now. Chapter 24, or when you get to chapter 7 and verses 24 to 27, you know what Jesus is doing right here? It's not really a mystery. He's not giving you some other theological knowledge of what you need to say. He actually begins with the phrase in the beginning of verse 24, Therefore, whoever heareth these sayings of mine. You know what he's referring to? The entirety of his message. So Jesus is coming down to the end of chapter 7 and he says, let me give you an invitation. You just heard the word of God preached, so what are you going to do about it? And I love that his illustration isn't playing 38 stanzas of just as I am, waiting for somebody just to come forward. His invitation is simply, let me draw out an illustration for you. You're one of these two individuals. And tonight, young people are folks tonight. I'm being a youth pastor for like 10 years. I just say young people automatically. So if it makes you feel good and comfortable, hey, it's meant to be a compliment. When you get into the reality, tonight the reality, I'm going to move. I'm sorry if you're going to have to move with me. I apologize. I, I just can't stand still. All right. All right. And I did have a monster before I came in. So <laughs> where were we? At the end of chapter 7, Jesus is making the statement here in verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. He's saying, you're going to be one of these two individuals. You're either going to hear the truth of God's word and you're going to make a decision to obey it, or you're going to hear the truth of God's word and you're going to say, well, that's not for me. I'm going to disregard it. And tonight, folks, that's the same way for us. It's no different for you or I tonight. We're going to hear the truth of God's Word. We're going to look at the truth of God's Word. And even as I prayed, I hope that we look at it accurately so that we can apply it appropriately in the reality that you're going to have to come to a decision with what to do with God's Word. So let's go through his entirety of his message here. I want us to see tonight that we must build a strong Christian life by laying a solid foundation. That's the illustration Jesus gives. When he talks about the wise man building his house upon the rock, he's given this illustration of a, of, a, of a foundation that has been built, that has been laid. It is, it is sunk into the ground to where it needs to be so that when the storms of life come, the house will stand. So tonight, folks, I want us to see that we must build a strong Christian life by laying a solid foundation. How do we do that? 
right? You might, the text that we are using might be a familiar passage to you, growing up, growing up in a Christian home. The song, it's already in my head, the wise man built his house upon the rock. But I feel as a disciple of Jesus, the text is extremely foundational to seeing the comparison of a living, of living a life of holiness. For lack of a better word, sometimes legalism. We, end, we tend to equate the Christian life to a matter of doing things as opposed to having a relationship. And we equate the doing things to, to feeling good about our relationship as opposed to understanding my love for him that motivates my obedience. Jesus here in Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and even chapter 7 is going to lay out even as the Pharisees have, have displayed time and time and time again that the Israelites' obedience to God will then, fit, will then better help their relationship with God. It's really kind of the opposite. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and obey out of that love for Him. You don't gain more love for Him by being obedient out of duty. Matthew is presenting Jesus as king and he is writing to the Jews and I believe that Jesus' message here is in light of living in the kingdom and for the kingdom. He has three points to his message, like every good preacher. The kingdom and the law is his first point, chapters 5, verses 17 to 48. The kingdom and living, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, chapter 7, verse 6. And the kingdom and liberty, chapter 7, verses 7 to 24. You say, but Pastor Jason, you, fit, you missed chapter 6, or excuse me, chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. That's his introduction to the entirety of his message. Jesus' introduction to his sermon is what we call the Beatitudes. The things that we lay out, the blessed are, for he shall. And the way that he's going to lay these things out, or ultimately, in my opinion, are, are these statements are, in a nutshell, the characteristics of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to claim to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, these are what are going to, out, these are going to be the, the evidences that flow out of you in your response to the things that are going to happen around. It's not ironic in the sense that Jesus is presenting the Beatitudes first as his introduction, knowing his audience to whom he's preaching to. An audience that's going to ultimately stand against the, the reality that I've got to build a relationship. I have to understand what that relationship looks like rather than fulfilling my, my Christian obligation out of duty and doing just things because it's what we're supposed to do instead of understanding what loving Christ looks like. So if you flip over to chapter 5 with me, let's look at just some of these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The humility that it takes to be, a king, to be a child of the king. That I can't get into heaven on my own. I have to come his way, on his terms. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the mourning here is the idea that simply that, that I'm mourning over my sin. That my sin actually hurts my father. And it hurts my fellowship with my Father. And I'm mourning over the fact that I cannot seem to get victory over it. And the comforting is to know that Christ paid that price for my sin. And as a child of the King, 
I confess that sin, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and he is faithful and right to forgive that sin. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, the humility in which I live the Christian life. Blessed are they who do thirst, hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for the, the things of truth, the Word of God. You know what you find when you dig into the truth of God's Word? You find that you come up satisfied. You find that your heart is actually is nourished. You find that, that when you walk away from God's Word, that instead of having a, a, a temptation to actually simply walk away thinking, I didn't get anything, actually you walk away thinking, I have other things I have to do, but I wish I could go back. It's, it, it fascinates me to think about, you know, sometimes our, our physical nourishment, the food in which we eat at the table, fills us up in a way that we really want nothing else. That all I want to do is take a nap. But when I'm feeding on the Word of God, all I want to do is dig back more into the Word of God. It leaves me with a hunger to desire to know more. They, they hunger and thirst after righteousness, and they find that they're filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Understanding what it is that Christ has done for me only helps me respond back to you in a way that says, Christ be magnified. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And then he continues on through the rest, understanding ultimately 10, 11, and 12. These, the, the, the description here is what's going to happen as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're going to get persecuted. People aren't going to like you for who you are or who you stand for. And what's your response to that? When one is truly a citizen of the kingdom, he will find that in... That when it that he will find that it will come with adversity. He ends his introduction talking about how the citizen will display a light and flavor that is unique for the kingdom. Look at verses 17, 13, 14, 15, and 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith it shall be salted. It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Therefore, he concludes his introduction with this, understanding what the citizen of the kingdom is going to look like. And when I strive to live as a citizen of the kingdom... There's unique aspects of me. As a, as a chaplain, I think about, um, I just had a, a phone call with my battalion chaplain, excuse me, my battalion boss, my, my company command, my battalion commander uh, this last week. And uh, he, he mentioned to me, uh, he's Jason, he's been in the military about 24 years. And he said, Jason, I've, I've served with a lot of unique chaplains. And he used the word unique. And then he actually changed that word unique and he said, or I'm just going to say they're weird. And he said, there's just something different about the way you interact with our, our Marines that I appreciate. I'm not making any statements about the chaplains that he served with in the past, 
or who he's interacted with in the past. But the reality is this, that when I, when I strive to let Jesus be my Lord and King, when I strive to, to understand who life is, I don't have to live my life any different. I don't have to be a weirdo. I live my life with the same passions and loves and desires that I always have. But understanding that Christ is the priority, those things aren't. And so I can say to my battalion commander, you know, hey, praise the Lord that it's not about me. But it's that work, him at work in me that allows for me to minister to your Marines in an effective way. You know what that is? It's being salt. It's drawing something out about myself that simply said, it's not anything that I could do any differently, but simply saying, hey, I want Christ to be magnified in the way that I live. I want Christ to be magnified in the way that I present myself, in the way that my ministry is operated. That ultimately when people are struggling with the aspects of life, that they know they can come to me. That there's something unique and different. It's not hard to be a light in the military. But you know where it is hard to be a light? Gilbert, Arizona. Sometimes it's hard to be a light in the neighborhood by which you live. Sometimes it's hard to be a light in the school that you go to and the teams that you play on. But Jesus says the one who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is going to live in such a way that all of it points back to him and that Jesus becomes magnified. Different than what the Pharisees were looking at. The whole idea for the Pharisees was everything points back to them. I taught you what you know. So he gets into his first point, the kingdom and the law. The kingdom and the law. Look at verses 5, 17 to 48 with me. I, don't, I won't read those entire, all that entirety of it, but I want us to walk through it. You said we're done about eight? Okay. <laughs> Jesus repudiated the Pharisaic interpretation of the law and correctly interpreted the Mosaic law as showing what God demanded. Right? So when you look at verses 17 through 48, really you kind of see some aspects of the law that Jesus is going to point out that almost makes him seem like he's against the law. Jesus isn't against the law. He does say that he came to abolish the law. He didn't come to abolish the law, but that the law would be perfected through him. Right? The reality of what the law was happening, that the, the rules of the law were being, were being so stretched that it was almost impossible for you to maintain them. It was like, he, okay, so you want to make a rule here. So in order for us not to uh, disobey this rule, so let's kind of put this, if we can put it in this direction. If we know we're not to murder... So we're going we're gonna to kind of put the rule over this way and make it so you can't even cross that boundary. And if you commit this sin, then ultimately you're committing all of these sins up to here. It, it becomes kind of a, a, a faulty or basically a standard of which they're trying to present, putting up a fence post that seems logical at the time, but ultimately becomes more about the rules in which they have placed than the authority of that God has presented. And Jesus is saying, I'm not, I'm not here to abolish the law. I want you to understand the law. But he's going to make some observations here that are important for us to see. He was against the misconceptions that the Pharisees placed upon the law that demanded more than what God had required. This misconception made it impossible for them to receive the righteousness which is acceptable to God. 
the demands of the law of God were unalterable because it was revelation of the holiness of God. Do you understand that? When God gave His law, it was about Him and the image of Him and His own holiness. His desire of giving the law, even to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, wasn't saying, well, here's, here, let me see what I can get Israel to live by. His desire of giving the law to Israel was saying, what is going to help my people become more like me? To be holy as I am holy. God did not demand a righteousness contrary to his own holiness. That is sometimes being displayed here in the Patriot or the Pharisees' rules. Christ then took the obvious laws and gave a deeper understanding that the act itself is not where the sin begins. But it ultimately begins in the heart. In the heart. Murder began with hatred. Adultery begins with lustful thoughts. This redefining takes away the justification that we often use for ourselves on why we are okay with doing a specific act because we have not done the obvious outward acts. You ever done that? I know that I just sinned in my heart, but the reality is I didn't really do it. Nobody else knows about it. It didn't affect anybody else. We don't want anybody else to know because that's really just between us and God, and that makes it okay. And Jesus is, is trying to even understand that it, even this pharisaical idea of where we would try to justify even in our own modern culture and say, you know, no, 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 help, let me under, help you understand the holiness of God here. The holiness of God therefore says, if you even look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery. If you look at your brother with a, 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 a sense of hatred in your heart for him, with a desire that says, I wish harm upon him, you've already murdered him. So Jesus isn't stretching the law like the Pharisees were trying to do, trying to get us to see, you must maintain this. He's saying, I want you to understand the holiness of God and where it really begins in your heart. Colossians chapter 3, I would encourage you to take some time tonight, maybe in your own quiet time with the Lord, to, to kind of compare the two, the put off and put on. If I'm a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven and I want my identity to be found in Christ, what am I to put off and what am I to put on? How am I going to be identified? Chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 6, he gets his second point. Jesus speaks on the kingdom and, the law and living. Jesus rejected the pharisaical practices of the law and pointed out that the Pharisees, in an attempt to constitute themselves righteous, actually violated the demands of the law. Let's look at a couple of these. He says in verse 1, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory in men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. You know what they're seeking? Man's applause. And you know what they got? Man's applause. But at the end of the day, it's empty. 
and it leaves them wanting more of men's applause. But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth himself shall re- or seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. He begins chapter six with our giving, and then our prayer life. Just as two simple illustrations here, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues, in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Again, they look for man's applause, and they get man's applause. But in terms of the reality of their, of their spiritual walk with Christ and the fellowship that they have with God, they have nothing. They're left with empty vain repetitions. And Jesus is going to give some illustrations here in verse 6 and 7. When thou pray, enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Jesus' whole idea here is understanding that our, our spiritual life really is between us and God, not for man's applause. But the rewards that have come openly, you know what those tend to be? The fruit of the Spirit that's grown in our life that's produced as a believer. The joy that overwhelms the Christian's life when he is submitted to, to, the, to the will of the Father, when he's submitted to the plan of Christ, when his identity is found in Jesus and the joy that overwhelms him that is simply unexplainable to the world outside of our own. It fascinates me in the midst of, of chaos when I'm working with, with Marines who are, who are struggling with their life and they're wanting to take it and they're, they're struggling with so many different things. And they, you know, Chaplain McDonald, how in the world can you be so calm in this situation? You know what I think to myself? Because I have something in me that you don't have. And I praise the Lord. I say, well, God, thank you, God, for a gospel opportunity. Let me share with you the joy that's in my heart. Now, while I can't really empathize with what you're struggling with right now, I have somebody who can. That could take your burden. The genuine life of a believer is not relying on what others think about them, but on making sure that Christ is reflected in every action they take and every word they speak. He does not need to feel like he should have the need to impress his pastor, his spiritual mentor, his friends, his family members or anybody else. We live in a world that wants pats on the back, don't we? We want to be appreciated for the things that we do. There's nothing wrong with being acknowledged for sometimes the hard work that we accomplish. You know, as Adam said, I paint houses on the side. I walk away from painting an exterior house thinking, I did that. Sometimes I feel guilty, that's a sense of pride, but I say praise the Lord for the ability that I have 
to do something like that. And I walk away with a sense of pride because that house looks good and the things that are there. But ultimately, I don't paint that house so I can walk away from it saying, yeah, I did that. No, I paint that house because I know there's a need and there's somebody who needs that done and I want to be able to fulfill that need for them. And in the hopes of fulfilling that need for them, being able to share the gospel. Having a gospel opportunity that really, I do this, I, I make no apologies when people ask me, what is it that you do? How do you get, do you not, I mean, they, painting houses on the side makes it kind of odd to say, you know what, I can't be here Friday or, or, or Monday, I have to be here on Thursday, that's my day off. What do you do normally? I'm a pastor. And you paint houses on the side? Yeah, I do. I tell them oftentimes that's my, uh, that's my stress relief. <laughs> So dealing with people all week long, I can put headphones in, I don't have to talk to you. <laughs> Except when I have a question. <laughs> so I said, it really is a stress relief. But again, it gives me opportunity. So where do you pastor at? What do you do? How did you get into ministry? Oh, let me tell you about that. They're gospel opportunities that have been presented before me. And recognizing that I'm a citizen of the kingdom means all that I do points it back, myself back to Christ. Jesus doesn't condemn the practice of giving or prayer or fasting, but rather purifies the practices so that men are not the focal point, but God is. I don't give so that others could see or know how much I really make or how much of a difference I'm, I'm presenting to the ministry. I don't pray so that others can feel spiritual around me or feel a lack of spirituality in the things that I do. Fasting isn't as common in our culture today, but sometimes it's the reality that I'm going to give up something for the sake of, of focusing my attention on something else. We might go through maybe a social media fast, but typically we're pretty good about letting people know, hey, I'm going to be taking this fast. I'm going to be off of this for a while. So if you miss me, I'll be back. No, the idea is to simply put it aside and be, be private between you and the Lord. Jesus then ties the reality of money to faith. He doesn't preach against the idea of having wealth, but that oftentimes wealth will distract one from acting upon faith. And then begin to worry. And instead of devoting one's life to the pursuit of material things to provide security for the days ahead, Christ commanded that they put God's work and His righteousness before all. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know what's fascinating to me? I've heard preachers talk about when you seek Christ's kingdom first and you do these, then the monetary things will start to happen. That's not the truth. That's not what he's presenting here. He is presenting the fact that when I seek his kingdom and let him be the priority, my needs are going to be met. I will find that I lack nothing, but I'm actually satisfied in the life that Christ has given me. And I walk away fulfilled, not because my hopes and dreams haven't ever come to fruition, but actually he's reshaped my hopes and dreams to be all about him in, the, in living in light of that, that I don't need anything else. 
I don't have hope for anything else. I don't have desires for anything else. It is fruitless to be concerned about the future when no promise is given to us of a future here on this earth. Right? None of us knows when we live, you know, when tomorrow may come, or that death may come. Could be tonight, could be tomorrow, could be 40 years, could be another 80. But live in light of today as if there is no tomorrow. And let Christ be magnified in the choices that you make today. Jesus refers to the Pharisees practicing practice of setting themselves up as judges of all men and measuring others by, by themselves in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Jesus is telling His disciples not to distinguish between good and evil, truth and error and doctrine, or even the action itself. He is instructing them not to judge what they perceive as the motive behind their actions. In essence... Look at what is truthful, what is evil, or, you know, good from evil. Distinguishing good from evil is necessary. Moral from immoral is necessary. But he's saying don't be judging behind their motives, behind the actions of what they're doing. The judging of others is often the reason to ignore the, only, the issues in your own life. Because it's at that point, it's not about judging them, it's about them judging us. Where we tend to get the most defensive about it. How many times have you heard somebody quote that to you? Don't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged. More times than not, that's in a defense of simply saying that I, I don't want, I have a justification by why I want to do what I'm going to do. You know, that's between them and the Lord. And if it doesn't, it's simply between evil and, and good. We, we present the truth of God's word and it's up to them to make the decision what they're going to do with it. At times there might be means of separation that we must do. But the idea is not so that we point out every error in somebody else's life. The kingdom and liberty is the third and final point that Jesus makes here in chapter, beginning in chapter 7, verses 7 to 29, actually into verse 23 or 24. Jesus instructed those who desired to enter into the kingdom. After correcting the idea of a, spirit, a public spiritual life at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus then turns his attention to describe the value of prayer in the life of a true believer. I want you to catch something here with me, because I think this is important. Our English doesn't quite do it justice in, in the way that he bring, presents it in verse 7, chapter 7, or 7, verse 7. I, uh, I teach Greek on the, at the college there at IBCS uh, at Tri-City in the ministry that we have. And there's something fascinating here in the Greek that, that I think the, the English just doesn't quite get. These are what we call present active imperatives. So when we talk about the present tense, it means it's a continuous action. So when we sometimes read this in English, we simply say, well, I've asked and I didn't get it. And you might ask the question, well, how many times did you ask? And I say, once. Yeah, that's not because that's, the, that's not how this is to be operated. The asking here, what he's saying, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Is a continuous aspect of doing this. I am to be asking. It's almost like the sense of nagging. 
This nagging isn't the sense that, that I'm going to get what I want, that I'm looking for something to possess in terms of my own life, or, you know, God, I really want a Ferrari. Can I have a Ferrari? Please, can I have a Ferrari? God, will you give me a Ferrari? I've asked you, can I get it? Can I get it? Can I, can I, can I? That's not the idea here. But the idea of our spiritual life is simply saying, God, I'm asking you to work in my life. God, I need you to work in my life. God, I'm pleading with you to work in my heart. God, I want to see you in my life. And it's a continuous aspect saying, I'm doing it over and over and over and over again. And God, I'm going to knock on the door and knock on the door and knock on the door until you answer that door. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth and he that seeketh, findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Again, the idea here isn't that I knock one time. And even in our sense of knocking, it's almost like embarrassing. Oh, isn't that sometimes how we act? Nobody hears this. No, it's a continual pounding. God, I want, I was going to pound it, but I think that's brick. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to do it. It's a continuation, a sense of, of pleading. And we would even consider it nagging. But not in an irritation manner, but in one pleading with the Father who has all access and has given us all access to him. He is continually to ask, seek, and knock. And as these things are done, he will find the faithfulness of God as he is truly the fatherly figure that cares for his children. Parents tonight, do you continually seek God in the choices that you make for your kids? Do you see God's faithfulness in your lives and the things that you have? Is that displayed to your kids to see? Is that a topic of conversation that you have with your family? Your values will be picked up by your kids. They have to choose whether or not they're going to accept those values at some point in their life. But when the faithfulness of God is continually displayed and you're talked about as a normal part of your conversation, you know what's more likely to happen? They're likely to see the faithfulness of God in the same way and the joy of God in the same way and the love of God in the same way. And the attraction is, how could I do anything else? How could I serve anyone else? How can I love anyone else? After sweeping away the tradition of the Pharisees as providing righteousness, Christ describes the true nature of righteousness, which would be to give of himself even when it is undeserved or even mistreated, to turn the other cheek when wronged or provoked. True salvation was to come through having a personal relationship of Jesus Christ, not by maintaining a religious belief system. Folks, tonight, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ and you're relying upon your works to get you to heaven, this is the exact chapter here where Jesus says it's not that. You can't enter into the kingdom by the things that you do. You can only enter into the kingdom by what has been done.
in Jesus' death on the cross and you acknowledging apart from Him, I have no hope of eternal life. That He took my sin upon Himself and gave me His righteousness. And that gift is accepting His righteousness on, on, my, on my behalf or His behalf. So true salvation is, is come through that personal relationship. Many will claim Jesus as their Lord, but few will actually have Him as their personal Savior. Even in the crowd to which Jesus is preaching, there are some that were there just simply to see the things that He would do. There were some there that were astonished by His ability to teach, but yet would not consider Him to be the Messiah. There were some that were just simply there to see and be a part of the crowd. And there were few that were there recognizing who Jesus really was. Beware of those who would preach the salvation without the proof of Scripture. And this really can be applied to our, our personal lives and our spiritual lives as well. Folks, beware of somebody who comes in with an inspirational thought with no Scripture to back it or tries to give you the inspiration of things without the reality of what God's Word says. They might throw in a verse here or there, but it really is all about their own agenda. We get to the end here, and I know we're late. I apologize. We're going to be done here in a few minutes, I promise. Jesus gets to the end of His message, and He's going to do what every preacher should do. Challenge people to take action. I told you, I already gave you the cheat at the, at the beginning, right? Verses 24 through 27 are his invitation. He's saying, you've heard what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. How you can possess that citizenship by, by acknowledging Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and yet how you live as a citizen within that kingdom. Is Christ the focal point? So let's look again at the illustration that he's going to use here. I want us to compare some things. Three takeaways here. Number one, both the wise man and the foolish man had access to the same building material. Doesn't that fascinate you? When you read the story, we tend to sometimes separate the two of them. Like one is happening here and one is happening here. They're not happening at different times. They're happening at the same exact moment. They both have access to the same building material. Jesus had just finished his message and was calling the people to respond. Both men had heard the truth of God's word. Both people. So let me ask you tonight. Do you come to church looking to be fed with the truth of God's word? Did you come tonight ready to be fed? Hungry for the Word of God? Do we come with a heart that is open to God's poking and convicting when He feels it's necessary? As Romans 12, 2 would say, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And God sometimes pokes at that very area that says, hey, you're not willing to give this over to me? To say no would be the foolish man. Are we coming so that we can look for the approval of men? Being in a smaller church, sometimes it's easier to know who's not here, right? You have that conversation at home, well, if I don't go, they're going to know. 
I think sometimes being in a larger church, that's even more dangerous. If I don't go, they don't know. At least you have accountability, which I think is a massive aspect of discipleship in the Christian life. Do you come tonight because you want a good feeling or even have a sense, a false sense of spiritual security? I have the checkbox. I did my job. Both men had the same materials. Both men faced the same storm. The same storm. The storms of life are inevitable, aren't they? We all go through them. So let's be real here. Jesus is not saying is that a genuine believer will never be impacted by the storm. Okay? Every major storm causes damage. Sometimes the storms of life hit us in a way that hurts. If we're looking at the idea of the construction of a house, that even when Jesus stands here, that the wise man built this upon, he built a house upon a rock and it fell not, for it was pounded upon the rock. In essence, it stood still, but it doesn't mean the shingles didn't come off the roof. It doesn't mean that a window didn't get broken. It doesn't mean that, that sometimes the, 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 the facial aspects of the house fell, didn't come off. All it means is because the foundation, the truth of God's word was implanted deep in their life, that when the storm of life hit, they were able to say, because of Christ, I can continue to walk forward. And yeah, right now I have some things I'm going to work through. But because of Christ, I have confidence to know I can continue to work through this storm. I can continue to walk through the storm. I continue to have faith that Christ is going to be magnified through the storm. I can continue to go forward as opposed to the foolish man saying, it's all, it's all washed out. The, the Christian life must not be worth it because, oh, look at everything that came out. If God was good, then why would this happen? No, because God is good, He wants you to see His glory in the midst of it. And that's sometimes the hardest aspect. It is only after the storm that the true foundation will be revealed. And you know who else sees where your foundation is? Everyone around you who knows you just went through that storm. I've mentioned the phrase time and time again tonight, the gospel opportunity. You know it's after the midst of a storm that the gospel opportunities present themselves because you have a hope in you that they don't understand. How can you be okay with this cancer? How could you be okay with that at car accidents? How could you be okay with, and you fill in the blank, and your only answer is because of Christ. <laughs> Sometimes that really is our only answer. A peace that passes all understanding in a way that I have no way to explain or help you understand. And all I can say is, but Christ. Where when the foolish man walks into that same storm and his house is toppled over and swept away as if there was nothing ever there, often results in a bitter, angry life, angry, bitter life. That Christ didn't work out for me. No, the reality is your foundation just wasn't solid. You wanted the hopes and dreams. You wanted to see all that Jesus could do without ever trusting really in him. 
Both had results. Number three. Let me finish with this tonight to ask you a couple of questions. What makes your house different than your neighbor's? When that storm of life hits, could you give them hope? When they don't understand it, how you continue to have hope in the midst of it? Can you stand with total confidence that in spite of what storm you are going through, your confidence rests solely in the very character of God? That God is, and you read the promises of God, and He's always faithful to them all. He's kept them all. And even in the midst of those trials, we call on those very promises of God, and we call out to God, I need to see your faithfulness. And God says, let me display it this way. Let me show you how I've been faithful in the midst of this storm. Let me show you my love in the midst of this storm. Let me show you my holiness in the midst of this storm. Because my greatest desire is for you to be like me. What will your storm reveal about your spiritual foundation? Will it prove to be a light in this dark world? Will it prove that there is a flavor about you that can be only be explained through the explanation of Scripture? Folks, tonight we can only build a strong Christian life by having a solid foundation. He who hears these sayings of mine and doeth them. You heard the truth of God's word tonight. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it?